Welcome to Day of Destiny with Dr. Michelle Corral, author, prophetic teacher, and pastor of Breath of the Spirit Prophetic Word Center. Dr. Corral can be seen weekly, nationwide, and around the world on her weekly telecasts that air on God TV, Impact, and Word Network. Now, let's join Dr. Corral by experiencing Day of Destiny, designed with your highest destiny in mind. Now, here is Dr. Corral. Okay, now, first of all, we're going to see that we do not know in the historic sense of scripture whether Nehemiah sent Hanani and his brethren back to Zion to see uh, what the state of the captivity was for the sake of those of you that are new students. We are studying right now. This is the time uh, for the 21 days of Messianic miracles, but this particular period in biblical history is what we call Shabbat Zion. And Shabbat Zion is the time after the ending of the Babylonian exile and the return back to Zion. Now, we have to understand why this is so spiritually significant. Number one, the prophets prophesied the destiny of the captives. And the captives returning back is what is going to keep the nation of Israel as a nation forever. You see, if they do not return back, there will be no more Israel. Do you all understand it? Okay, Israel's name has already changed at this point in history. In this point of history, this is no longer, even though to us, always Israel. All right, but th at this point in history, this is the, the state of Israel has changed to the name Yehud Medinat, meaning the Babylonians who conquered it. Now the Babylonians were conquered by the Medes and the Persians. So the Medes and the Persians have now made the state of Judea, not even Israel, the little area of Judea, actually a vassal state. Do you all understand that? It's part of the commonwealth of the Media Persian Empire. There's no more Israel. Do you see that? Yeah. Only spiritually. Do you see that? Yeah. Technically, it's gone. Technically. Do you see that? Yeah. It's the land of the Yehudim, but it is at this point, and never, never, of course, God will never let it go. We will never let it go. The people will never let it go. But technically, it has been conquered by the Babylonians, and by the Medes and Persians. And before Yehud or Yehuda, before this, the area of Judah was conquered, the 10 tribes in the north were conquered by the Assyrians. And they are all gone. There's no more. Do you all understand? All Jews in the north are gone. They're scattered to the ends of the earth by the Assyrian Empire. Do you see that? Okay. And what the Assyrians did was they practiced assimilation. And so they shipped people from other countries to now occupy the northern part of Israel who were not Jews. Do you see that? Okay. And this is where we get the Sumerians. Okay. Samaritans. Do you all understand that? Okay. So the Samaritans have actually um, taken over and are the primary people among other mixtures that are living in the, in the Holy Land. But the area of Judea, okay, the tribe of Judah, Jerusalem, is still in ashes. It's still broken down, all right? Now, the governor uh, that is appointed by the Medes and the Persians in Samaria is a man by the name of Sunballet. He is the governor over Samaria. Do you all see that? He is not the governor over Yehud, Yehud Medinat. He is not the governor, and we're not going to call it that. He's not the governor over Judea. Do you see that? Okay. But the last governor over Judea was Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, who came in the first expedition before Ezra. 
and Zerubbabel, along with um, Yehosh, uh, the, the high priest Yehoshua, who was the son of Yoshadak, they rebuilt the temple. The temple is already rebuilt in the time of Nehemiah. But the problem is that now, though the temple is rebuilt and you have approximately 43,000 Jews now returning back to live in the state of Judea, they're not a state. Okay, they are not, they have not, no national unity. There is no national unity. There isn't even a national language anymore because Hebrew is now not used except for those Jews that were left. And now the language is the language of the Babylonians. It's Aramaic. Do you see this? And the language of the nations. Are you seeing this? Okay. So we do not, we do not have a political system. We only have scattered Jews living in a territory. So therefore, the rebuilding of Zion means the rebirth of the nation of Israel. Do you understand? When I say that when we're talking about Nehemiah, we're not just talking about a man who's going to go back and just rebuild the ruins and be a really sweet guy. That is not what this is about. This is about a man who is so courageous, who's going to risk everything, and because of him, there is the rebirth of Zion and the rebirth of the nation. The rebirth of that little territory that if it were not for the courage of Nehemiah and those that are going to go back in the Shabbat Zion, there would not be what is today. Are you with me? If you are, say amen. amen. So this is why it's not just about Nehemiah's bravery going, rebuilding Zion and his zeal for Zion. And of course, it is for Kiddush Hashem and all of the wonderful things that are happening. We must understand it's more at stake. The most important thing that is at stake here is the Kiddush Hashem for the nation of Israel to remain a nation, national unity, national oneness, political system being developed again, a rebirth of the nation, though their sovereign will not come back. They're, the Jews that returned have a hope, okay, because they're ruled in their own country over foreign rulers. But even to return back to those ashes and to even pick up one stone to rebuild the nation, I want you to understand, takes um, a hope because what's the hope? The hope is that God will be faithful to his word that Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah that promised that they will come back, that the northern tribes will come back, and that all of Judea will come back, and that the king will reign over them again. Do you all see this? And since that time, there has not been any monarch. The last monarch that legitimately reigned over Judea was Zedekiah. The next monarch will be Mashiach. Are you hearing this? I don't know if you heard me. I said the next monarch... The next monarch will be Yeshua HaMashiach, and somebody ought to give God the praise. Hallelujah. So now, the Jews who are returning back, do you realize the mission God's given them? Do you realize the kind of strength, courage, selflessness? that they are having by giving everything back up, going back to a place that's completely just ashes and completely controlled by enemies, the kind of faith they have to have to be able to rebuild Zion because rebuilding Zion means we are rebuilding Zion, though we don't have, we do not, we do not have the sovereignty over our own land. So it's going to take faith in the words of the prophets. That's why they're building it, because they're building that God promised he would give it back to them. So that is the courage. They're going completely on the words of the prophets that God will again give them ownership over their own land. Yeah. 
And that happened in 1948. Somebody should say amen. amen. Somebody ought to say God is faithful and he never fails. Hey, we have to see these political problems that are involved here. So I'm sharing with you the literal. Okay, so Nehemiah's expedition and his purpose uh, and his purpose to return back is not just only to rebuild the ruins, to rebuild the ashes, but he has within himself a national call to rebuild and to give for the rebirth of the nation of Israel, the rebirth at least of Judea. There is a national identity that's going to be established, and we need to see that there's also enemies in the land that are going to greatly oppose the rebuilding. Okay, they're going to completely um, oppose the rebuilding of Zion for the purpose that they already have political power in that land, especially Sanballat. Sanballat is a governor, and we do not know who the governor was after Zerubbabel. There's no evidence after Zerubbabel's gone who the governor is. So it appears from the text that Sanballat already considered himself ruler over that whole area. This is why he is going to oppose Nehemiah in his building to such a degree. Do you see this? Okay. I want us to understand what we're up against. All right, so here we're seeing this is the literal interpretation of the scripture, but now let's go prophetic. Okay, we are looking here. Um, we're looking, Hanani, one of my brethren came. And go ahead and read that. Verse 2 and verse 3. The Hanani, one of my brethren, came. He and certain men of Judah. And I asked him concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are, great, are, are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also was broken down, and the gates there were burned with fire. Okay, I want you to understand that. First of all, we're still staying in this literal sense. We're heading toward prophetic, but we're not there yet. Okay, I want you to see that three times, twice in chap, once in chapter one, once in chapter two, and uh, actually twice in chapter two, we have this concept of the gates being burned with fire. Mm -hmm. Let's look at some of the, I want, I want to prove this to you. So here we see the gates thereof are burnt with fire in verse three. Let's go to chapter two. And just look at chapter 2, just for a moment, just to accentuate it. Notice when he is speaking to the king to ask the king for permission to return to rebuild Zion. Verse 3 of chapter 2. Go ahead and read that. And said unto the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad? When the city, the place of my father's sepulchers, life waits, and the gates thereof are consumed with fire. Okay, so how many times have we seen the gates thereof consumed with fire? Okay, so the identity of the desolation is what? What is the primary characteristic that the Torah is giving us concerning the desolation? What's the number one aspect of its desolation? Does it talk about... Um, the fields being burnt? Does it talk about uh, no persons living there? No, but there was nobody living there except a few stragglers. Okay, what is, does it talk about um, the um, people that were murdered? No. What is it, what is it emphasizing? The gates thereof are burnt with fire. That's the identity. Okay, that's the most important part of the horban, the burning. Okay, so we need to understand that the Bible is emphasizing that in order to rebuild Zion and for it to be birthed out again, the gates have to be built before the wall is built. The wall cannot be built first. The gates must be built first. Are you with me? Okay, so here's, that's what we see. Now, beloved saints, I want you to understand that the gates here that are being spoken of were burnt by 
a certain group of people, weren't they? All right, I want you to see that after this message was given to Nehemiah, verse 4, what is his reaction in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4? What does Nehemiah do as a result of hearing what's going on in Zion? He is in Persia. He has not been home. He does not know what the state and the condition of Zion is. He sent Hanani, his brethren, or we believe he sent, and he's come back from this expedition, and they are giving the report that they, that um, Jerusalem is still in the very same state that it was in when the Babylonians burnt it. Okay, it hasn't been touched for 70 years. Why is that? Does anybody know why it hasn't been touched for 70 years? It's Hefker. Say Hefker. What does Hefker mean? Hefker means untouched land. Hefker means... It just grows of itself. Okay, it's Hefker. This is what was to happen in the Sabbath year. Okay, the Sabbath year was a year every seven years, according to Leviticus chapter 25. And what happens in the Sabbath year? You neither sow nor reap. You can't do anything. You just have to let the land rest, right? Well, there were seven, there were 10 Sabbath years that were never observed 10 Sabbath years in during the reigns of the last five kings. So that is why it was a 70 year exile. Do you understand that? Because God wanted to make up for those 70 years because the land could not be touched. And now from not obeying the commandment of God, there's, not, there's nothing for 70 years that lies waste. Are you all seeing this? Okay. But now the 70 year period is up. And now you can build. Now God is releasing everyone to go back. God would not allow a person to touch it because why? The land was holy. And now this is what has happened. But now that 70, the seven, the 10 Sabbaths are over. Do you see that? All right. So now, beloved saints, he mourned certain days and fasted and prayed to the God of heaven. Notice after he hears of the desolation, what does he do? He he ha actually responds with mourning and with weeping. All right, I want you for a moment tonight to take your attention to this because Nehemiah represents to us during this time of revival as the kind of baptism of anguish God wants to give every person before revival comes. If you notice, as soon as he heard about the ruins, his response was weeping and mourning. Are you with me? If you are, say amen. Now we're going to go a step further and we're going to look at how that uh, the gates were destroyed. First of all, we need to see who destroyed the gates. Who burnt the gates? Babylonians. Babylonians. Okay, Nehemiah is a type of Holy Spirit, and he is a type of uh, representing a type of church. He's representing, because when we read Nehemiah, we are reading about repairing the ruins of revival. Do you know what that means, to repair the ruins of revival? It means, beloved saints, that that repairing the ruins of revival literally means that we as God's people need to repair the ruins of revival. God is calling us to repair the ruins of revival. And how do we do that? We do that when we look at Nehemiah and we realize that the response of seeing the desolation, the response of seeing the broken down gates should cause in us the same kind of response of praying for the church. The Babylonians that destroyed the gates represents the world. 
Because throughout scripture, we see, and I'm going to show you right now, but there's so much witchcraft in here, it's hard to preach. I'm being so opposed, but it's a spirit of some bullet that's opposing. This is one, today is, the forces of hell are like this, and the intercessors are not interceding, and some people are distracted, and they're adding to the warfare. So I'm asking that if you are a, an assigned intercessor, that you would just wake up right now because we're in a battle because the devil doesn't want this word to get to his people. Okay, and I don't want anyone distracted that's supposed to be an intercessor doing other things and and adding to the warfare. Are you with me? All right, all right. So what are we talking about? We are talking about the call to revival. God is calling every one of us right now to a call to revival and the burnt ruins in Judea and the burnt ruins of Zion are a prophetic parallel of the state and the condition of the church whether we realize it or not. We need to rebuild the gates and you and I must understand that every one of those gates have to be rebuilt before revival comes. Hallelujah. All right, so the Babylonians are not only the Chaldeans. We must understand the gates of Tishabov are the gates that the Babylonians burnt with fire. But we must also know that the Bible teaches us that Babylon is not only a term for Chaldea and for the Chaldeans, but it is also a spiritually synonymous word for the world. Are you with me? If you are, say amen. Throughout the Bible, we see, beloved saints, Go with me to Revelation chapter 18. We are going to see that the Bible oftentimes, all throughout scripture, prophetically parallels Babylon with the system of the world. Are you with me? So when we see Babylon that burnt the gates of Jerusalem, we realize that the church is also being invaded by spiritual Babylon. I hope somebody's hearing this today. And that the gates are being burnt up with fire. Are you with me? If you are, say amen. First, let's make an assessment as to what the word of God teaches us about Babylon. Going to Revelation chapter 18, reading in verse 2, and I will break it up for you. Babylon is always likened unto a system. Notice it says, go ahead and read verse 2. And he cried mightily with a strong voice. We can read verse 1 because of this mighty angel. And after he says, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon, the greatest fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit, and the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. All right. Another angel came down from heaven having great power. Now, just look at this angel's power for a minute. The whole earth was lighted with the glory from one angel. And this one angel that was so powerful has now come as a messenger to declare the falling of Babylon. Are you with me? Now let's look and see what the Bible is teaching us about Babylon because Babylon represents the world. Babylon represents the system of the world. Babylon euphemistically is used throughout the scripture to define um, a, a pseudo church to define um, the world system, the world's economy, the way the world thinks, the way the world, uh, especially in terms of of um, the the commerce of the world. Are you with me? If you are, say amen. amen. Notice what the Bible says in Revelation chapter eighteen, verse twelve. It is the habitation of devils. And it is the hold of every foul spirit, and it is the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. So let us look at this word hold in Greek, and
around this word cage in Greek. Do you see that? It has become the hold of every foul spirit. And it has become the what? The cage of every what? Hateful, unclean bird. All right. This word for hold and this word for cage is the very same word. We don't know why the King James uh, translators uh, actually translated it into hold and cage. But the actual word here is feluke in Greek. And a feluke is a prison. A feluke is usually used as a prison, but it's a special type of a prison. It's a prison, and the emphasis on the prison itself is the guards of the prison. I'm going somewhere with this. So that means that there is a guarding in the demonic satanic realm that nothing can leave once it's been taken captive. Now I want you to see. It is the prison of every unclean and hateful bird. What are those birds? Those are the birds of prey. Okay, what does a bird of prey do? A bird of prey uses its claws. Okay, there are various forms of birds of prey. We have eagles, even though they're beautiful and majestic and they fly and there's beautiful things to learn about eagles, they are birds of prey. They're carnivorous birds. Same thing with a hawk, same thing with a falcon, same thing with any of those particular types of species of animals. Okay, what do they do? They're called birds of what? Prey. Prey. Why? Because they actually hunt down vulnerable creatures. And we must understand that Babylon now is the cage of all those that spirits from the pit of hell have hunted down vulnerable creatures to keep them in a hold. Hello, somebody. I'm saying a bondage that is a hold. Are you with me? If you are, say amen. And the kind of way that birds of prey devour their species is not pretty because they eat them alive. Hello, I said they eat them alive. And so therefore, you and I must see that the Bible is likening Babylon and the system of the world to a place of bondage where there is guarding, where it is very difficult to get out of it, where they are uh, in a place where they're like caged, where they are imprisoned. Are you with me? These spirits are so strong. And in the end times, that's how they shall be. And who destroyed ba the city of Zion? It was the Babylonians. So you and I must understand what we're up against in the church because the gates are being burnt by the Babylonians. I don't know if you're hearing me today or not, but somebody ought to get this message. Are you hearing it? All right. So we see this, um, this habitation of various species of demonic spirits, and we see this fluke, which is the dwelling place. And we see the hateful birds, birds of prey. That means any person that's vulnerable and weak. Yeah. And notice what the Bible is going to say. Hallelujah. I want you to see this because lo and behold, we are going to see that in Revelation chapter 18, there is a word that is spoken from God. Verse 4. Let's look at that just for a moment. Verse 4, go ahead and read that, Rev Kev. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. Wait a minute, come out of where? <gasps> come out of her, my people. That means that those birds of prey also captured saints of God into that Babylonian system. Yeah. Yes. Are you with me? If you are, say amen. Say 
tonight in the name of Jesus. We are going to rebuild the ruins of Zion tonight in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Somebody ought to give God the praise and give God the glory. So, beloved saints, hallelujah. So we see now, we see that just as the Babylonians that broke down the gates and burnt them with fire are a prophetic parallel that we must understand that the world is eroding the gates in the church and have dismantled and destroyed the gates by which the presence of God enters in because the gates are the entrances of the presence of God. Are you with me? If you are, say amen. I want to go back to Nehemiah chapter 3 so you can understand what Nehemiah chapter 3 is continually continually repeating Nehemiah chapter 3 I want you to see in verse 1 it says set up the doors do you see that set up the doors and we see this phrase set up the doors there's not time tonight to articulate it because believe me I would articulate for you all six places we see it in verse uh, we see it in verse 1 we see it in verse 3 we see it also in verse 13 we see it in verse 14 we certain in verse 15 we see this set up the doors why set up the doors? Why is it continually repeated? Because the gates represent an entranceway. Zion represents a specific place in Jerusalem. Please understand these are gates into the city where the presence of God dwelt. Are you with me? If you are, say amen. amen. Jerusalem represents the place of God's presence. So you and I must realize that each and every one of these gates are entranceways that you and I enter into the presence of God. The doors represent entering into God's presence. Go with me, please, to Psalm 24 so you can understand this. Psalm 24, and we are going to see how the gates and the doors, say it with me, gates and doors, say it with me, everlasting doors. Oh, my. Everlasting doors. Say it again. That means they're not going to be, they're not changing. Hello, somebody. I said, they're repairing the ruins. They're not making new. They're repairing it. Hello, they're not making new gates. They're rebuilding the old ones. Hello, are you with me? I said, they're not making new gates. They're repairing the old ones. Somebody ought to say they're repairing the old ones. They're not reinventing Christianity. We are not reinventing Christianity. <laughs> Are you hearing this? Okay. Oh, Lord. Oh, somebody should give God praise. Say we're repairing the, we're repairing the gates. We're repairing the gates. Hallelujah. The king of glory is entering in. We're repairing the gates, and the Babylonians cannot have the gates. Oh, my God. All right. So here we see, beloved saints, chapter 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it on the floods. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord and who will stand in his holy place? Hallelujah. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to vanity or sworn deceitfully. Lift up, verse 7, lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lifted up, ye everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is the king of glory? He is the Lord God, mighty in. 
Bible saying here? The Bible is saying here, lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lifted up, ye everlasting doors. Not doors that change every season. Not doors that change with the culture. Not doors that change with what is politically correct. They're everlasting doors. You cannot change those doors. Do you understand those gates cannot change? Somebody say, I'm not changing the gates. I'm repairing the gates. Hallelujah. They will not change. Somebody ought to give God the praise. Okay, going back to Nehemiah chapter 3, the rebuilding of the the rebuilding of the gates. All right, now I want you to see something. Notice the Bible says in verse 3. We're looking at the fish gate, but the fish gate uh, did the sons of Hasana build and they laid the beams, set up the doors and what? Locks thereof. They set up the what? Locks thereof. The locks and the bars. Say these things are forever. These things are forever. They're locked up in the heavens. God's word will never change. Somebody ought to say no change in scripture around here. Somebody ought to say no secularizing scripture around here. Somebody ought to say no Babylonians will touch the gates. Are you hearing it? Hallelujah. Now, beloved saints, for a moment, I want to switch to the gates. All right, looking at the first gate, let's go to chapter 3, verse 1. Notice, Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priests, and they builded the sheep gate. It's the repaired it in Hebrew, the the sheep gate, they sanctified it, set up the doors of it, even to the tower of Maat, they sanctified it unto the tower of Hananiel. I want you to see this is the only gate that's sanctified. The rest of the gates are not sanctified. Notice who's building the gates. Do you ever see a high priest building anything? <laughs> My God. There is no high priest ever. That is not the high priest's job, but yet this gate is so holy that the only one that can rebuild it is the high priest and other priests. Why? Because number one, the sheep gate represents our great high priest, Jesus Christ. And number two, that this sheep gate was a gate. It's near the pool of Bethesda, right there. Bible tells us that from John's gospel. And the Pool of Bethesda was not only for the people, but there is, in the Mishnah, it tells us that at the Pool of Bethesda, the sacrifices of the flocks were washed at the Pool of Bethesda before they went through the sheep gate. Every, every sheep that's going through the sheep gate is going to the slaughter. Okay, all the sheep. They're all lambs. They're all the flocks. Passover time. Thousands of lambs that have been bred without blemish the entire year are going through the sheep gate to be offered on Passover. And Jesus is the Passover lamb, and he's the high priest. And he's the one building that gate. Yes. That first of all, this is the only gate that's sanctified, which tells us he's the one who leads us through the gate. If we go any other way, we can't get into God's presence. It's only through the great high priest and through his sacrifice. Are you with me? But now we must also understand that the gate that is the sacrificial gate 
is the first gate in order to enter into the presence of God. You see, the Babylonians have taken that gate and they burnt it with fire. And now they have made Christianity a... a um, if you will, a culture of convenience, not sacrifice. I don't know if you're with me or not, but you see, sacrifice is how God has always been served from the beginning all the way to now. It is always through sacrifice that we serve God. Hello, somebody. Are you with me? The second gate is the fish gate. Those of you that have been studying with us understand that this fish gate. Now, first of all, those sheep went through that sheep gate because they're going to be sold, not, not in the temple. So nobody think that's, that's what that is about. Many Jews would go all the way up to Jerusalem during Passover, but they had to have a lamb to sacrifice for their family. So they would go to the sheep market and purchase the lambs or purchase whatever animals they wanted. They were kosher. They went through the, the gate, and it was a gate that had to be sanctified. Nehemiah saw to it that the high priest sanctified it, and he built it because he perceived that what is missing in the city is we have to establish first the foundation of worship again to God and sacrifice to God. Are you with me? If you are, say amen. The fish gate is also a very important gate. The fish gate was a gate that Galilean fishermen would enter into. It was a gate established for the sales of fish. Usually because the Galilee was the area of fishing. The fish fishermen from Galilee, hundreds of them, would come bringing their fish and go through the fish gate to sell their fish. Hmm, there is a price to pay to be fishers of men. That is a gate. What did Jesus say to the fishermen? He said, come follow me. And what did they do? The Bible says they left everything and they forsook everything to come and to follow him. Are you with me? If you are, say amen. Say, that is a gate that will establish the presence of God forever in our life. We must, if we are going to be his disciples and we want the presence of God back into our lives, we cannot let the Babylonians reinvent service to God. They cannot burn that gate with fire because there is a price to pay. Jesus said, if any man come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever will save his life will lose it. But whoever for my sake will lose his life shall find it. <laughs> the next gate is the most awesome gate of all. The old gate. Read that for us, Philip. Verse 6. Jehoiada, the son of Hosea, and Meshulam, the son of Bessadiah, they laid the seeds thereof, and set up the doors thereof, and the locks thereof, and the bars thereof. What is the old gate? The old gate is defined in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16. Let's read it. Go with us, please, to Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16. Jeremiah 6, 16. And here we see it. Would you read that for us, Prophet Philip? Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways and see, and ask for the old paths. Mm-hmm. Where is the good way? Walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your soul. But they said, We will not walk here. Yeah. The old gate 
is the old paths, the old ancient paths that were set for us from God from the beginning that never change. The old gate is also the gate where legacy lies, where those who have gone before us, I see the William Joseph Seymour's in that old gate. I see, hallelujah, the Mariah Woodworth Edders in that old gate. I see the John Wesley's in that old gate. I see the Bishop Mason's in that old gate. I see, hallelujah, those that have laid their life down for the gospel in that old gate. What does that mean? That doesn't mean we become old-fashioned. That doesn't mean we become an old wine bottle. That means that we never depart from the path, that no matter how corrupt the Babylonians try to make the church, that we will always remain faithful to what has been taught from the beginning. Look at Proverbs chapter 8, verse 22. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 22. Would you read that for us? Prophet Philip. The Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way, before his words of old. Yes. Continue. I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning, forever the earth was. Say this with me, I'll always treasure the word of God. I will never depart from the promises, nor will I depart from the paths, nor will I depart from the commandments, nor will I depart from the ordinances, nor will I try to be politically correct just because it seems nice, fun, cute, whatever the case may be. I'm never going to depart. Somebody ought to say I'm making a commitment right now. That I'm going to go through the old gate because that is how the presence of God is obtained in our life. Yes. Can you see some of this stuff that's going on now? Yes. Bishop Seymour was a holiness pastor. He was a holiness pastor before he was baptized in the spirit. That means we have to live a godly life. We have to stick to the principles of the Bible. Just because things are changing in the earth, because the Babylonians are suggesting things on television, the Babylonians have their own system. Babylonians have their own way, and they're burning the gates with fire. Does not mean that we should be allured into Babylon. Come out of her, my people. Didn't we just read that? The old gate, the old way. This is why it's so important for us to read about legacy. It's so important for us to read. This is why it's so edifying to read about Azusa. It's so edifying. It's so edifying to read about the saints of God who prayed at the altar and believed God. It's so edifying to read about uh, our wonderful missionaries that have gone and trod the gospel road and did things difficult, such as the wonderful man of God, Hudson Taylor, who, of course, you hear me talk about him all the time. Because I can't, I can't get away from the legacy that he left. And George Muller and his legacy. And all Catherine Coleman and her legacy. These are not just ministries. These were legacies. Are you with me? Yes. All right, beloved saints. So we need to understand that these were gates. Now, beloved saints, I want you to see before we close here tonight that Nehemiah weeping is a type and shadow of what happened before the gates were repaired. There must be anguish. Anguish always 
precedes revival. And if we are not moved with anguish, there cannot be revival. You see what happened, you, you, you see the words that we just read in Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, Nehemiah understanding what happened in Jerusalem, the state of Jerusalem, the desolations of Jerusalem. If we go very quickly to Daniel, we're going to see Daniel also uh, is very similar. Notice Daniel before Nehemiah, when hearing the desolations in Jerusalem, that the gates were burnt with fire responds also in anguish, just like Nehemiah. Notice what the Bible says. It says um, in, in Daniel chapter 9, looking at verses 1 through 3. Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. Let us just look at this for a moment and see Daniel's reaction. It's so similar to Nehemiah's reaction. Go ahead and read that for us, Prophet Philip, verses 1 through 3. In the first year of Darius the son of Ahasuerus, of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years, whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. And I set my face unto the Lord to seek by prayer and supplications, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Notice when he heard, when he when it the he understood by the books of the years left by the prophet Jeremiah, the word, it's the same thing that happened to Nehemiah when Nehemiah heard of the desolations. Now when Daniel remembers the desolations, you and I must understand it is the ability to see what's happening, the ability to allow the Spirit of God to baptize us with anguish, to uh, allow the Spirit of God to bring us to a point that we're going to do something about what is happening, that the only way that revival can come is when God God puts his hand on a Daniel, when God puts his hand on a Nehemiah, when God puts his hand on a people that will precede that revival with prayer and fasting and see that that is how the revival is going to come. Let us stand to our feet tonight. Let us begin to worship the Lord tonight. Heavenly Father, Bokora Basira, Makorebetere. While we're standing, I want to say something about the other gates. The valley gate is a very important gate by which we enter the presence of God. Sometimes we go through the deep valley. And the valley is not a place that is pleasant. It's deep, it's down. Valleys all throughout the scripture have two meanings. Not only is it the place that's down, but the valley is the place that represents trials, tribulations, but it's in the valley where the fruit is grown. Abundant fruit is grown in the valley. Are you with me? Oftentimes we're going through trials and this is where we meet the presence of God. It's an everlasting door. It's an everlasting door that must be repaired. That we learn as the church how to embrace the times that we don't get afraid of trials. There's nothing to fear in a trial. David said, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. It's in the valley that he reveals his hand. You know, one time I heard a beautiful sister, and since it's the old gate, I'll tell you. Many of you remember Dottie Rambo. She's a great woman of God. The year she died, I was, our ministry was just, she was getting ready to come. We were all excited. Dottie Rambo was going to come on August the 10th, but she never made it. And one of the most beautiful songs she ever wrote, she died on Mother's Day, by the way, 
in a bus accident going to preach. Terrible bus accident. Her and her staff, it was her bus, her gospel bus, going to do songs. And one of her songs that uh, she wrote was a song that she was betrayed. She had been betrayed by someone she loved very greatly. And she was weeping and weeping and weeping at the beach by herself. And she felt a hand come upon her shoulder. She knew that there was a song that was going to come out of that tribulation of that betrayal. And she felt a hand very tender and just so loving on her shoulder. And that was, of course, the hand of the Lord. She turned around and was nobody. It was the Lord. And she knew that's how she was to start the song. I feel the touch of the hand so sweet upon me. But that's what happens when we go through trials. That's how Jesus reveals himself. Truly, and I'll say truly, the greatest times I've ever known Jesus, ever felt his love, personal love. You always feel his power, but to really feel him, to really feel his love is going through the deepest, darkest trial of your life. That valley gate is established forever. And I believe tonight the Lord is strengthening some in the valley gate. You're very discouraged you feel like you want to give up. But God today is telling you that he is revealing his glory through the valley gate tonight. You are being strengthened. You are being encouraged. Hallelujah. You ought to just give him praise right now because he loves you so much. All of you that are going through the valley gate, the Lord is saying, I, I believe every single person that's going through the valley gate tonight is going through the valley gate because your ministry is going to be increased. God's going to use you so mightily. You have no idea how God's going to use you. He's going to use it for his glory. He's going to open every door for you. Your, his hand is on you for service. And you ought to give God the praise. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The fountain gate, the water gate, the horse gate, the east gate, and the inspection gate, but another gate is the dung gate. The dung gate is the gate where outside the city walls, all that was refuse was burned. We cannot get into the city without burning the flesh. That gate has always got to go That on the altar. That gate has always got to be established. We've got to put our will on the gate, on the altar. Father, tonight, in the name of Jesus, every one of your children in this room, we release the anointing. We release the power of God. I believe tonight God is putting his hand on the Nehemiahs. The Nehemiahs, hallelujah, that will be willing to sell everything to reestablish the will of God to set up the kingdom here on earth. The Nehemiahs that are going forth, honey, God is going to use you. Hallelujah. There's a Joseph anointing on you, not just because of the, this coat of many colors that you're wearing tonight, but God is saying consolation. God is saying divine consolation. God is saying a Joseph anointing. I don't know who they are in your own family, but God is telling me, hallelujah, just like Joseph. Hallelujah. It's going to be glorious. And God, we give you praise. Thank you for joining us today on Day of Destiny. We invite you to our website at mydayofdestiny.com where you can easily access other podcasts and obtain your copy of Dr. Corral's latest book, Secrets of the Anointing. Also, we want to take this moment to invite you to engage in extending your hand of kindness by planting your seed or offering for multitudes that include orphans, providing water wells, providing medical supplies, clinics, feeding programs, and many other services to the suffering church and through efforts of evangelism worldwide. 
Just go to our website and click the donate button or text to give. Text HESED, C-H-E-S-E-D, to 7797. That's HESED, C-H-E-S-E-D, to 7797. You are also invited to visit Dr. Michelle Corral Facebook or Instagram. We look forward to having you encounter the anointing with us on our next Day of Destiny podcast.